When was the last time you witnessed something remarkable? Something that was unique, something that drew you in, something that you, you almost wondered maybe this would be the only time you would ever see this. About a year and a half ago, I had a chance to go to uh, one of the games in April for the Nuggets, and, and the Joker, Nikola Jokic, was approaching a record that had never been touched before. Some of you guys remember this. It was April of 2022, and the Joker had uh, approached 2,000 points, 1,000 rebounds, and 500 assists in one season. Nobody's ever done it. And outside of the Joker doing it again, nobody will ever do it again. And so we went, and we waited, and he had a horrible game, but yet he was just chasing that last rebound and assist, and he got it, and they stopped everything, and confetti flew off the ceiling, and I had the girls there with me, right? And I'm looking at Chloe and Hallie and, you know, and Emma, and I'm like, girls, don't you realize how amazing this is? You're never going to see this again. And they were like, uh-huh. <laughs> Can we get some dipping Dots, Dad? Can we get some dipping Dots? <laughs> they were bored after like the first three minutes. You know, that's how it goes. But I just think there's something inside of us, isn't there, that draws us to the remarkable, that draws us to things that are, are bigger than us, that seem to um, maybe move us out of the mundane of, of everyday life. And we, we just have this desire to experience something great. Some of you might remember the summer of 1967. It was what they called the Summer of Love in San Francisco, and at the corners of Haight and Ashbury Streets, there's a, a district in San Francisco that became known for its music and its countercultural pushback on society and its drugs and all of that thing. And so that summer, they say 75 to 100,000 people flocked to San Francisco, filled up the streets to hear guys like Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and these different bands and to experience this remarkable event that did shape so much of the culture at the time. There was another event that happened just two years later where, where four guys said, we want to have a concert in a field in New York. And so they figured that maybe they would have 50,000 people there and 400,000 people decided to show up to see Jimi Hendrix light a guitar on fire and be a part of Woodstock. Anybody at Woodstock? Okay, you guys. I, I know like one person that was there, so yeah. yeah. So it's good. We're all on the same page. Nobody's got super lucky. But, you know, it's these, these events, these experiences, these remarkable things that draw us in, and we, we want to be a part of them. You have a friend that says, oh, man, you got to go try out this new restaurant. You got to check out this new coffee shop. Come and see this, this new experience. Go to Meow Wolf downtown. I, I haven't been. I hear it's fun. But, you know, it's like all of these experiences that we're chasing, and, and they're good, and they're fun. And I think we're, we're captivated by them. But here, here's the question I want to ask about these experiences that we chase. Is, do they make a difference in our lives? Like, have you ever wondered that? I'm one of the people that, I think, suffer for, from FOMO, fear of missing out. Anybody else? Any, there's like two of you in here. The rest of you are just so content. <laughs> but I, I've always just said, I got I to gotta be a part of that experience, right? I, I've got to go to the game. I've got to catch that concert. I've got to try that new restaurant. I've got to do all these things. And, and for me, I, I don't know that I ever truly saw what was going on under the surface, but what it was was there was this hope and experience that it was going to change my life, that 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 meal, that concert, seeing black crows for the first time, whatever, right? Like, that's going to change who I am. It's going to change my life. It's going to be so meaningful. It's going to make a difference in every day that comes. And I go, and I have this great time. 
I have so much fun. I, and then the next day comes and I go, come on, what's next? Anybody else been there? Right? And, and you continue to seek it and you continue to chase it and you go to the greatest game and your team wins the Super Bowl. It happens. Your team, <laughs> your team but, but the next year comes and you're like, you lose to the Lions and all of a sudden you're like, this, the world is over. Why do we do that? I think it's because we do seek it. We seek that thing in our lives that it's going to make us feel like we're, we, we've finally made it. And so we, we chase experiences, which experiences are good. But I wonder, what if what truly makes a difference in our life isn't driven by the experiences around us, but it's driven by something that actually happens to us? Not around us, but to us. Many years before the Summer of Love, many years before Woodstock, there was another gathering where people came to see something. About 20,000 people, we estimate, gathered on a hillside near a lake to hear somebody speak. They, they heard all these rumors and all these whispers about this guy. And they wondered, who is this guy? We hear he's performing miracles. We hear he's teaching with authority the word of God. We hear that he is a really great guy, this guy named Jesus. But we need to check it out for ourselves. And so people came over for miles and miles and miles, and they wanted to see, is what I'm hearing about this Jesus guy really true, or is it just kind of made up? Is it just kind of fabricated? Or is this, there's something really here. And, and, what is really interesting about this event, this crowd, this crowd that came, they were no doubt looking for the same things that we look for in remarkable experiences. They're no doubt looking for something and wondering, can this make a difference in my life? And what is interesting is for those that stuck around and those that paid attention and those that really leaned in, they would say that it was everything, that it made the greatest difference in their lives. And I, and I wonder, what if we really took the time to explore this too? What if we really looked the time, took the time to experience it? Would it have the same impact on our lives as well? There, there's a man named John who was one of Jesus's close friends, and he was there on the lakeside that day. And, and many years after Jesus died on the cross, and his followers saw him rise from the grave. John picked up his pen and he wrote a letter, and he wrote a biography about the name of Jesus, the man, the man named Jesus, and it's the, the gospel of John. If you have your Bibles, if you have, if you have it with you, grab it, flip to the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And, and what's interesting about John is that uh, John ended up spending three years with Jesus. John ended up sleeping in the same camp Jesus slept in. John ended up eating the same blackened, it was probably carp or something. It wasn't salmon, but, you know, blackened fish, whatever they ate that they fished out of the Sea of Galilee with Jesus. They drank the same sparkling water, just different kind of sparkles, right, you know, in the first century. And, and he lived with Jesus. And so John picks up his pen, and a lot of scholars think maybe 70 AD, which would be 40 years after Jesus died, maybe uh, could be up to 90. They're not sure. But he, he picked up his pen, and he wrote, wrote about Jesus, he wrote about his experiences with Jesus. And I think it's important for us to be able to take in what John says because John didn't just go to that event that day on the lakeside and go, huh, cool, okay, I'm gonna go write a book. John spent time with 
Jesus. And I want you to notice what he says about his experiences with Jesus. I want to camp out just on a couple of verses here in John chapter 1. Now, John mentions another guy named John. Let me just clarify this. Mitch mentioned this last week. There was John, this John, John the Apostle is what we would call him. And then there was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was famous for uh, really being a kind of voice for God to say, hey, guys, repent of your sin, come and get baptized, and prepare your heart for when God moves. And so we see that John the Baptist had followers. In those days, they called them disciples. People would tend to follow somebody, and they would ask a leader, and they would say, hey, uh, John, can I be your disciple? Can I follow you? And often a leader would put you through a little bit of a test or questionnaire. And these typically were young teenagers or very young men, and, and then you would become a disciple. And so John had disciples. And so John was baptizing. And one day we read in John 1 that Jesus actually comes and gets baptized. And that there's this really cool thing happens. And John makes a comment about Jesus. I want you to notice this. Look, look with me at John chapter 1, verse 35. Notice this. Notice what John, the apostle, our author John, says about Jesus after he's baptized by John. It's the next day after Jesus is baptized in John 1.35. And it says, the next day, he, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, behold, which behold is such a fun word. We don't, we don't say it anymore. Behold means like, look, check it out, man, right? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So in verse 35, he says this, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus and he walked and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And so the two disciples heard him say this and notice what it did, they, and they followed Jesus. Now, it would have been pretty clear to see what Jesus was saying or what John was saying about Jesus. The Lamb of God was a, a kind of a term that they would have understood, right? If you were Jewish in culture, you would have understood this. This was talking about God's holy one or this, this, you know, really special person that God was going to send. And so these two disciples would have understood this. As so they turn and they, they follow Jesus, and notice what happens in verse, in, uh, you know, we see in verse 40, we find out one of the names of the guys. Look at verse 40, and it says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Somebody say Andrew. Good name, isn't it? Just good, strong name. And if you guys are... If anybody's pregnant, think about having a boy, Andrew, just, yeah, just a, just a good name. So uh, we, we don't know who the other guy was, but I like to speculate a little bit, and we're going to speculate. So a lot of scholars will speculate that the other disciple here was John, our author, John. If you notice that John refers to himself, if you've ever read the book of John, he later refers to himself as the, the beloved disciple of Jesus, the disciple Jesus loved. John never refers to himself as John, and so you'll, you'll notice in this, it says that there's two disciples, and one of them was Andrew. So a lot of scholars wonder, could this actually have been John? John could have been anywhere from 13 years old to like 17 years old. So John was young. That's why, and when John writes the book of Revelation, if, you, if you're familiar with that book, he's, he's older in age, but he, you know, John lived to the end of his life. And so John's young, and, and we think it could be John, but we, we definitely know it's, it's Andrew. And so notice that they leave John the Baptist and they go follow Jesus. And notice what happens here in verse 38. Jesus actually turns them around. Mitch talked about this last week. Jesus, Jesus turns around, he looks at him and he says, well, what are you guys seeking? It's a good question, isn't it? What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. You know, it's interesting in life, and I'm assuming this is the same 
for you, but when you experience something in life, let's say you go see that band that you've been wanting to see. I've tried to see the Foo Fighters like four times. And every time something happens, I move, you know, God calls us to Colorado, right? Or, or, or something else happens or some tragedy happens. And I just haven't got to see him yet. And so in my mind, I'm like, I gotta see the Foo Fighters. If you haven't heard the Foo Fighters, you're missing out, right? It's good, it's good stuff. Uh, but, but you know, there's these things, like you go see a band and then you make a value judgment. You go eat at that restaurant everybody's telling you about. Go to My Neighbor Felix. Oh man, everybody says it's so good. It was really good, right? You get in your friend's, your buddy's Tesla for the first time and he hits the gas and you're like, all right. If you've been in a Tesla, you know what I'm saying. So you, you do all these things and then you have to, you, you think about it. You don't just walk away and go, oh, cool. No, our brains, the way our brains work is we make value judgments. We make value judgments about everything. That's how you decide whether you're going to go back to that restaurant. That's how you got to decide whether that Tesla is going to change your life or, or whatever, whether the band was as good and live as they were in the studio. So we have these value judgments in our lives, and we say, well, does this make a difference in my life? Does this mean something to me? But I, I, want, to, I want just to kind of ask you, I don't know about you, but I often make a value judgment about something before I experience it. Anybody else have that problem? You meet somebody, you don't really know them? Ah, I don't like that guy, right? You look at a restaurant's menu, and you go, that looks good, right? Like, it could be charred to death, 4,000 calories, but man, cheeseburger with blue cheese, man, that looks good, right? Like, we make value statements on things before we even get to experience them. Anybody ever bought a house without seeing it? Anybody ever bought a car without seeing it? You guys are... You guys are pretty, pretty uh, investigative here. This is good. Back when Courtney and I were looking for a house for the first time, we were online and we found this house. We're like, man, this house is in our price range. This house is beautiful. This house is everything we want. So we go, we go check out the house. We walk in. It was horrible, right? The carpet was stained. It smelled like cat pee, right? Like the backyard was like the size of a postage stamp. I was like, whoever did your pictures, God bless them, right? Like, they are so good. They need to hire, they need to be, we need to all meet this person, right? But, you know, it's one of those things that you, if you don't experience something, you really don't know it. You really don't understand it. And, and I think here's the question. Can you truly make a value judgment about something if you never truly experience it? You can read about the summer of love. You can watch a YouTube video about, YouTube, about Woodstock. You, 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 can, you can watch highlights of Nikola Jokic, but is it truly, can you truly make a value statement if you haven't experienced it personally? See, I don't think you can. And I think one of the things that we see here is that Jesus calls to John and Andrew. We're going to just assume it's John. He calls to Andrew and, and, and maybe John, and he says, come and see. Come and you will see. Not like come and bump elbows, not walk by the storefront and look in. Like come and you will see. Look back at verse 39. He said to them, come and you, what is it again? Will. Not you might or you maybe or you could. No, it's like, come. There's this invitation to experience Jesus, right? There's this invitation to come in. That word, come and see, is that come and you will see. It's actually one word. Um, it's horaho, I think. We're going to pretend it's horaho. And the word, you, the word means to come and see with your mind. Specifically, to come and spiritually see, to have an inward spiritual perception. So here's what I want to ask you. How have you seen Jesus? I want you to really consider this. And if you are a believer and you follow Jesus, I want you to consider how you would answer this question, how you could talk to somebody about this, how you could ask a friend or a coworker or a neighbor 
Like, have you truly seen Jesus? See, in this room, I would say a lot of us have different experiences. We're somewhere in process, somewhere different with different starting points. And some of you grew up in Sunday school. And your picture of Jesus is Sunday school Jesus. It's flannel graph Jesus, right? He had a sweet robe on that flannel graph, right? And a sweet tunic. That's why some of you know Jesus. Others of you, you know Jesus because of the red words on your Bible. Because you've come to church and we've, you've pulled out your Bible and you've seen the red words of Jesus. Others of you really, you've kind of passed by Jesus. You've seen what culture has said about Jesus. You may have a, an understanding of what somebody said about Jesus because of a movie you saw or because of a Christian that you knew. But do you know experientially what Jesus is about? Have you seen Jesus because you have spent time around him. So really know someone, you have to spend time with them. I mean, think about your spouse. Right? When you met your spouse, or you met your roommate, or you met your best friend, and you, you saw him and you're like, that person's pretty cute, right? And I saw Courtney, I'm like, she's super cute. I need to take her on a date. Well, then you go out on a date, you get to know people. I mean, how else are you going to know if their car is a mess, right? Or if they have 1,000 pairs of shoes, or if they use more hairspray than Pam Anderson in Baywatch, right? Like, <laughs> How else are you going to know these things unless you experience them? How are you going to know if what you've heard of Jesus is true unless you've experienced it? You can come into a church, and you can sit, and you can doze off, right? You can hear a few things. You can talk to a friend. You can hang out with someone who goes to church. But if you haven't really spent time with Jesus, how do you truly know if what you have heard is true? So Jesus invites us. He says, come and you will see. So notice verse 39, the second half of 39 says this. So they came, Andrew and maybe John, they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. And I just want to highlight this again because I think you need to hear it a lot of times. Mitch said it last week. When you see details like the 10th hour, what you're seeing is when you see details that don't advance the story, but they're just there, that is given as proof that it's eyewitness account right? People don't write stories and say, and it was about the 10th hour. They'll say things like, oh, well, it was, you know, it was a beautiful overcast morning, right? It was the 10th hour. This is John is saying, it was the 10th hour. Like, we went and hung out with Jesus. And the 10th hour is going to be about 4 p.m. So they're going to go have dinner with Jesus. They're probably going to go, you know, watch some Netflix with Jesus and hang out and catch the season three of The Chosen, and then they're going to go home. And so they spend time with, with Jesus, and we don't know what they talked about. We don't know what they ate. We don't know what jokes Jesus told, but we do know it was an impactful time. How? Look at the next verse. Notice what Andrew says to his brother, Simon. The first thing Andrew does, he hangs out with Jesus that night. What's the first thing he does? My guess is he runs home that night, and he says to Simon, we have found the Messiah. Now, now he, didn't, he didn't go, hey, Simon, we found the Messiah. I'm sure he was like, dude, we found the Messiah. Like, what gets you that excited? Like good, some good barbecue, right? I mean, for me, I'm like, we found the brisket. But imagine, John is so fired up. Andrew is so fired up. I'm sure John was too. That he rose and he finds Peter. First thing he does, we found the Messiah. Now, that might not make any sense to you, so let me back up here. We need to talk about Jewish culture a little bit to make sense of that word. If you've been in church a long time, you know that word. You kind of have an understanding for that word. But if you're talking to a friend who has no experience at church, you need to understand what that word means. In the Old Testament, we see that the Jewish people, they believed that God was going to send somebody to rescue them. They were an oppressed people. 
They were a people who had their, their land taken from them, who had all kinds of terrible issues, who had so many things happen, but yet over and over and again in, in, their, in, their, in their book, in, in the Bible, that they continued to see God was said he was going to send this Messiah or uh, Mashiach. And I just keep looking at Darren, seeing if he's going to give me a nod on these pronunciations. <laughs> and, and, and so it, the idea is like the term is the holy one or anointed one. Somebody say anointed one. It's like God's anointed one. It was like the golden child with Eddie Murphy, except way cooler and way bigger and more real. So Ron's the only one that got that joke. So the, 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 the idea was that God was going to send someone to come and rescue their people. And so they, they were looking and they were looking forward to someone who was going to come and be their king to push back the oppressors, to restore their kingdom, and who would help them lead them to a place of peace and justice. And if you were Jewish, you were waiting. The Passover was to, you were waiting on this, this Messiah. The word for Messiah in Greek is Christ. Um, yeah, in Greek is, is, is Christ. And so they were waiting on them. And so John and Andrew meet Jesus, and they run and they tell Peter, we found him. And I want to ask you again, what is it in your life that would lead you to run to your friend, your best friend, your wife, your brother, your cousin, your uncle, whatever it is, and say, we found the one we have been looking for? If you base it on the last few years of our country, it seems like it's politics, right? Does politics actually do it for you? Just a couple years later, to somebody else. Things change again, pendulum swings. Sometimes we think it's a new relationship. I found the one. I thought the last one was the one, right? I found the one. New job. I found that new job that's going to really make me feel great and feel whole and feel full. And then I go to the first day and I realize that it's the same me in that new job. And so what is it for us that we're looking for, that we're seeking after, like this. What is so powerful about this? And, and again, I want to hit this again. I think this is so important to see that our author, John, he spent three years with Jesus, lived with Jesus, walked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, heard Jesus speak. And he, he decides that he is so convinced after spending all of his time and experience with Jesus that he wants to write these words. And as powerful as that is, I want you to see what he wrote first. If you have your Bibles out and you're at John 1, look at verse 1. Notice how John starts off his biography about Jesus. He, he starts it off, Mitch kind of hit this last week. He doesn't start by talking about the day John was born. Notice what he says about Jesus. He says this, that in the beginning was the word, logos. Somebody say logos. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I've known some of you guys for three years, and you guys have known me, right? And if you're going to write a biography about one of us, how are you going to start that book off? Not like this, right? Not, not like this. You know, one of the, I, I think one of the most amazing proofs of, of the fact that Jesus was who he said he was is that his brothers believed that Jesus was God after they saw Jesus die and rise from the grave. How could you get your brother who's seen you do all the things you ever did to believe he is God? Well, it must really be true. John spent three years with Jesus 
John could have had seen so many opportunities of Jesus that would have let him down, but he didn't see any of those. Instead, it all built up to the beautiful reality that Jesus truly is the Son of God. John says that he was the Word of God. This means that Jesus is the one who spoke everything to existence. So tonight, walk outside and look up at the sky. Billions of galaxies. Hundreds of billions of stars. Beautiful, beautiful colors and I mean, look at the Milky Way. Look at the fact that the sun and the moon are exactly the right size, even though they are so much further apart and so different in reality. But when they come together on an eclipse, they perfectly match. God's design. Jesus spoke that into creation. Jesus is the one that spoke everything that you see, can touch, can feel. John says, that is this guy that we spent three years with. Isn't that beautiful? It's just so beautiful. And John says that, God, that Jesus is the light. What John is saying is that Jesus came and revealed God to us by becoming one of us. And the, the beautiful reality is that what John is saying after spending time is that Jesus is, is not just this Messiah we are waiting on. He is not just this earthly king we are waiting on. He is the remarkable son of God. He is the remarkable savior of the world, and he is the one that we have truly been seeking for. John writes another, le- another letter to churches a couple years later, and notice what he says this in 1 John 1.3. He says this, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and in- indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. John says, listen to what I'm saying, because I was with him, and I saw him, and I had my hand on his shoulder, and I watched him die, and I watched him rise from the grave, and he is who he says he is. But don't just bump elbows. Don't just spend a little time listening. Don't just examine from afar and make a quick judgment call without truly knowing. You have to actually have fellowship. You have to actually do life and experience it. Otherwise, you're going to miss it. And if you miss it, it's going to be the biggest miss of your life. A.W. Tozer, some of you know him. He wrote this quote. I've told it to you so many times. You're probably sick of it, but I think it's so good. A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so that means the most important decision you'll ever make is what you believe about God. The most important decision you will ever make is what you believe about Jesus. Do you accept Jesus as God, Savior, Redeemer, Rescuer of your soul? Or do you accept what culture says about Jesus being a good man and a moral teacher? Islam even says that he was a great prophet. But as the video says earlier that C.S. Lewis said, Jesus can't be all those things. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. And so we have to, we're face to face with that decision. Like you, you could be, have have been sitting in church your entire life. You might've said, asked Jesus into your heart in Sunday school, got baptized as a young kid. It doesn't mean that because you once said yes to Jesus that you're, you know, just slam dunk, I don't need to learn anymore about Jesus. We have to spend our lives experiencing and exploring and understanding. Because when we have questions, we have to be able to answer them. Because when we go off to college and we get confronted with problems, we have to know how to answer them. When we start to wonder, God, why why do you allow these things to happen? We have to be able to make sense of them. So we can never stop experiencing Jesus. But if you've never experienced Jesus, 
If you come to church because your wife asked you to or your husband asked you to, or it's because it's free babysitting for your kids in the back, I get it. You are in a place to experience and ask the question, who truly is Jesus? Because it is the most important question that we will ever have to answer in our lives. You can't just look at it and make your decision. Your kids probably aren't like this, but my kids are really uh, picky eaters. Anybody else got picky eater kids? And so we'll we'll do dinner and invite the kids in, and they'll they'll just walk in, and they'll be like, ooh, gross, barf, right? Courtney the other day made homemade... uh, we made some homemade fajitas, we made our own sauce, and it was amazing, but it didn't look amazing, but it was amazing, right? And so we're plating it up, and the kids walk in, and they're just like, ew, barf, that's going to make me puke, you know? And I'm like, if you eat it, it's going to be delicious. But we all do it, right? I mean, you look at Brussels sprouts, and you're like, it's nasty. You eat them after they've been covered in bacon and candied, and you're like, praise the Lord, right? <laughs> Brussels sprout farmers, God bless you. But we, we do this, and a lot of us approach Jesus this way. We take a quick look. We look at a Christian who's a mess. We're all messes, aren't we? We look at somebody who's a mess, and we're like, wow, Jesus can't be real. Look at that guy. Or, or we read about Jesus, and we're like, huh, Jesus said that. That's really hard. Yeah, he, he, that can't be true. Or we look at something in the Old Testament, and we're like, well, those people seem crazy. So if that's true, then Jesus must be crazy too, and I don't want anything to do with them. And we just, it's like looking at a plate of food and judging whether or not that is good or that is bad. You can't do it. You, you, you just, you can't do that. You can't just move on to the next thing. Each of us are faced with this decision. We have to decide on our own what we're going to do about it. It's like this. I used to love, I used to love Coke, a cola. I used to love Coke. I used to drink like a case of this a week, right? So much that my teeth were like yelling at me, right? But, you know, I, you can go on and drink Coke, and, and do you know what's in this? Really healthy stuff, right? Yeah, like a gallon of sugar, crazy amount of acid, syrup that'll stain your teeth. And, and you could say, well, Coke makes me happy, right? And I get it. It used to make me happy too. You can live a happy life till you're about 58 if you drink a case of these a day, right? Now, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, knocking you if you have a Coke because they, they are delicious. But when you see these two on a table, which one are you going to think looks a lot better than the other, right? You, you walk over and you see that water and you're like, man, that doesn't look very good, right? It, it, at first, it, doesn't, it just doesn't taste very good either, right? It's just kind of boring. Take a sip of this and it's like, especially the <laughs> I haven't had one in like four years and I'm... I'm just going to pour it out right now. So, but, but the reality is, we, we look at Jesus like this. We walk up and we go, oh, Jesus, you look boring. But man, culture, the world, prosperity gospel, whatever it else is, man, that looks so good. That looks so good. But you don't realize it's going to kill you. How many of you guys like water, actually, after drinking a lot of it? Praise God for Colorado, right? <laughs> In Missouri, we just drink sweet tea, right? <laughs> out here, you actually need it. But... Once you start drinking it, you start spending some time with it, you start experiencing it, you're like, man, that makes me feel good. See, God has so much more for us, but if we look at Jesus like we look at water versus soda or a plate of food on a table that we've never tasted, we are going to miss what God has created you to walk through. We're going to miss the blessings that God has created to you to enjoy and to experience. 
So the reality is it, it matters. It matters how you spend your time. And it matters that you intellectually and honestly pursue Jesus to experience who he is to find out, is this real or not? John says it's real. What do you say? Here's one thing I want you to just to know. Just really one point today is this, is that Jesus invites you to experience something remarkable. Like we're chasing after the remarkable. Jesus is inviting you to experience something remarkable. And this isn't just a one-time thing. This, is a, this can be an everyday thing. This can be an every moment thing. When I was in Israel in January, I had a chance to go to Caesarea Philippi. I took this picture, actually. This is me. It was a good picture, huh? Yeah, I know. I'll sell it to you, $5 a print. So if you guys, you guys know this story, so uh, Caesarea Philippi was a place where Greek gods were worshipped and sacrifices were made. And so the big one on here to uh, the left um, was where, where Pan was sacrificed to, and then over to the right, you can't see it, was where Zeus, oh, no, I'm sorry, the, the big one where, to the left was where Pan was sacrificed, and this big one is where Zeus was sacrificed to. So they would bring their sacrifices and animals and all kinds of weird, terrible things happened. And this happened for, for so long. So Jesus one day, Matthew 16 tells us that Jesus and his disciples come and they're hanging out on this, on this rock and they're hanging out. Leave that area up if you would, just for a quick second. So they're sitting there looking at this. And so Jesus looks down at this with Peter and John and James and the guys. And he says, he's talking about it. And he looks at him and he says, who, who do people say that I am? And they give him answers. There's all kinds of speculation about who Jesus is. Why don't you put that verse back up for us? Verse 16, 13. Then Jesus came into the country of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his followers, who do people say that I, I, the son of man, is? Son of man was a nickname Jesus gave himself. And so they give him some answers. Our culture says a lot about Jesus, doesn't it? Our culture says that he's a good man. He was a moral teacher, even a prophet, maybe. So, Peter and John and James, they give him that answer. And then Jesus looks at him, he says in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? See, here's the reality. Like culture says a lot of things about Jesus, who Jesus is. People around you are gonna say a lot of things about Jesus, who Jesus is, but that doesn't matter. Who cares what they say? What matters is what you say. Do you believe that? It truly is what matters. It doesn't matter what somebody else says. It matters what you say because one day, that's all that's going to count. Because what did you say when you came and experienced Jesus? And so know what, notice what Peter says. Well, he says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the holy one. You're the one we've been waiting on. You're the one we need. You're the one my heart has been seeking after. You're the son of the living God. And then notice what Jesus says. He said, man, Simon, son of Jonah, you are happy, happy. Other translations say blessed because you did not learn this from man. You didn't learn it from watching YouTube videos. You didn't learn it from culture, but you learned it from spending time with me because my Father in heaven has shown you this. See, how did Peter come to believe that this crazy guy that he heard all these things about, that he heard all these, doing all these miracles, and he heard all this speculation about was the Messiah, the Son of God, the Holy One, the one that was gonna save his soul? He spent time with Jesus. He experienced Jesus. He watched Jesus. He listened to Jesus. He spent time with people who spent time with Jesus. And in doing that, the Holy Spirit, God, his Father in heaven, your heavenly Father will reveal to you who Jesus really is. 
So what do we do with this? Let me just end with this. What, what, what do you do with this? I think it's time that we spend the time with Jesus. No matter where you are here today, if you come in here and you're just not sure who Jesus is, maybe you've already made up your mind and you don't think he is who he says he is. Or maybe you come in here and you at a very young age said yes to Jesus and you're wrestling with some stuff now. Or maybe you're here today and you've recently said yes to Jesus and you're trying to, to learn more and understand more about him. The key to all of this is Jesus saying, come and you will see. We have to spend the time. And so just a couple notes. I think the, the first thing we have to do is we have to learn to honestly read the gospels. You say, well, I'm trying to read my Bible. Where are you reading at? Here's what I, my challenge to you is to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. My, my Bible reading plan this year, have I told you guys this, 2023? I'm only in the gospels. I've been through them like six times already. And it's amazing. It's beautiful honestly read the gospels. Don't just skim through it. Don't just read it to say you read it. Spend time trying to get to know someone like it was a love letter written to you. The second thing is I think we have to ask God to reveal this to us. And you might be here and you might say, I'm not into this whole spiritual stuff. I'm not into this prayer thing. I'm not into trying to understand all of this stuff going around me. And what I would say to you is that Jesus says Peter revealed, understood who he was because his father in heaven revealed it to him. If we aren't being honest, intellectually honest with ourselves to read God's word honestly and then to ask God to show us the truth about Jesus. If you don't, you're not sure about it, I challenge you, pray. Ask God to reveal who Jesus really is. And if you are a believer who is struggling to understand who Jesus really is, man, ask God, pray to God. God, give me eyes to see who Jesus truly is and why he came for me. And the last thing is this, and you guys are doing this today, but I want to encourage you. We have to spend time with someone who knows Jesus. We have to spend time with people who know Jesus. And whether that's coffee with uh, someone that you know has been walking with Jesus for a while, it's spending time in church. You might come to church like once a quarter. I encourage you, you probably need to be around more than that to experience who Jesus truly is. And I think when we do this, it, it, this is how we come and we'll see. This is how we will come and see who Jesus truly is. And when we come and we see something remarkable, I truly believe like John and like, Jen, and like uh, Andrew and like Peter, we will see and believe because it's faith that Jesus is who he says he is. And he came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for us and rose from the grave. It's faith that we put in Jesus that we're saved by grace through. And when God saves us by grace through faith, we are once and all and for all set on the path of life where we have a beautiful future, where we have the ability to live today by saying yes to Jesus and experiencing all of the remarkable, beautiful things that Jesus has for us. So that's my challenge to you, to lean in this week and experience Jesus, to come and see. Would you pray with me?